welcome to For Your Consideration, a podcast of the Christian Study Center of Gainesville. The Study Center exists to facilitate the thoughtful consideration of a Christian understanding of life and culture in the university community. For Your Consideration brings you audio from our events and also interviews with guest scholars. episode, we bring you audio from a lecture that Dr. Michael Allen delivered at the Study Center on September 19th. Dr. Allen is Professor of Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary. The lecture was titled, Lessons from Hippo, Reading Augustine's City of God in a Time of Crisis. I'll confess, I come in peace, but I'm a Miami Hurricanes fan, and it's a time of crisis. I come in sackcloth and ashes. And the Gators won, but it was tougher than expected. And sometimes when a crisis befalls you, it's hard to think of or invest in anything else. And we are in a season where in different ways we have felt pressed in and challenged by a host of overlapping and sometimes seemingly overwhelming crises. And so I want to consider for a little while tonight with you the question of the life of the mind and the practice of theology and what place it might have in a time of crises. Uh, Many thinkers have given themselves to that. I think it's a worthy question, especially at the beginning of an academic year. We take seriously the opportunity, the remarkable gift that we have to think, to read, to discuss, to do so together, and not take that lightly. And my wager is that paying attention to Augustine's City of God from a very different world, in a different time and place, and with a unique set of crises at hand that it'll inform us and repay the effort. So that's my hope this evening. I want to begin by describing the world come apart and the way in which that called forth Augustine's city of God. In late August of 410, vandals came in and for three days laid sack to Rome. Now, they didn't strike the entire city, much less the wider empire. But they did smash and grab. They did assault and even murder. And the implications the next morning spread far and wide. Jerome later would say this, when the brightest light of the world was extinguished, when the very head of the Roman Empire was severed, the entire world perished in a single city. It wasn't too long before people began asking the question, why and how? And then they quickly moved to the question, whom? Whom shall this be blamed upon? And it's important to know something about the Roman Empire prior to the time of 410 AD. For roughly three decades, Rome had been in a period where Christian influence and power had been on the rise. And we often think of Constantine, a a century earlier at the beginning of the fourth century, and the favor that he showed to the church, the way in which he stopped persecution. It was really a half century later when Emperor Theodosius reigned that the law actually not only curtailed pagan practice, but nudged and favored Christian culture. So much so that around the turn of the century, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo there in North Africa, 
began, like others, to speak of this as a tempora Christiana, a Christian time or era, a period where Rome so long, representing Babylon and the way of the evil, seemed to be turning and repenting, perhaps taking on the form of God and his kingdom on earth. So it's no surprise when that's been in the water for a while that the the siege and the sack of Rome would be blamed upon Christians. Rome hadn't been touched for the better part of a millennia, and suddenly Christians have only 25 or 30 years of reign, and the city has already fallen. And they are blamed for this great travesty. Augustine, as often is the case, receives a letter from a friend, Marcellinus. He's an imperial official sent to Africa. He writes just a few months after the sack of Rome, asking for input. How do we make sense of this? How do we respond to charges against Christian leaders and Christianity more broadly? And Augustine speaks of how this is what summons forth his writing of the city of God. Some of you, perhaps like me, have friends and relatives. You text them a question, they text you back a tome. This is the mother of all such examples. Marcellinus asks for a short letter with some guidance, and Augustine sends him what's roughly eight to 900 pages in most English editions. In doing so, he gives far more than he's asked. He not only responds to criticisms of Christianity, but I want to suggest briefly tonight that he actually provides a set of critical resources for us as well. He doesn't just respond to the charges of those outside the church, arguing that they don't land or they don't stick or they don't subvert Christian claims, but he actually criticizes the very questions themselves. He gives us a different way of looking at what has happened and the world to which it has happened. I think each of those steps repays our attention. Perhaps it's helpful, though, to think by way of analogy of the significance, the seriousness of what occurred here. And so when your director, who's been so kind to have me here tonight, was in seminary, I was not old enough to teach. I was in college. And I remember when I was in college on a Tuesday, September morning, seeing on the news images, startling, seemingly apocalyptic images. I was nowhere near Washington, D.C. or lower Manhattan, wasn't even in a field in Pennsylvania, but it seemed as though the world was suddenly tilted otherwise. It seemed as though we'd entered a new era. And I didn't know anyone personally who died that day. I know a couple people at third remove who suffered the loss of their life that morning, September 11th, 2001. And yet I, like I think pretty much every American, suddenly felt vulnerable, felt as though things you could assume and take for granted were suddenly thrown up with significant question marks. In late August 410, the Roman Empire was not overturned. In fact, the various suburbs of Rome, and yes, they did have suburbs back then, they weren't all touched. It's quite possible you could be on one end of the town and not know that the other end was sacked. And yet, as soon as word spread, they experienced September 12th, just as we did, with the same questions, the same sense of doubt, the same sense of uncertainty. And 
the natural intuitive response to ask why and how and to whom can we lay blame. I want to suggest that as we think about Augustine's City of God, we think about the way in which folks around the Mediterranean world, folks in Europe and North Africa and further to the east, ways in which they would have been wrestling with those same questions, reflecting on this crisis and what uncertainty it it suggests might lie ahead. Charles Matthews says this as he's reflecting on the city of God. He says, wars will always have worries and terrors, anxieties and uncertainties. These are our lot in life after the fall, east of Eden. But we must never allow the terrible pressures of today to make us forget that today is not all there is. In a very real sense, that's the argument of the city of God. To address a, a crisis and its terrors, that pain and its grim reality, but to put it in context, to help us remember that that's not all there is, that death does come, but joy cometh in the morning. Augustine, as per usual, responds overwhelmingly, eloquently, and in great wisdom. I want to give you a brief sketch of his response before focusing on a few themes along the way. Uh, the, the City of God, like many ancient works, is organized by books, what you and I would call chapters. There are 22 of them. The City of God, Augustine suggests, is organized in two big parts. The first 10 books or chapters are his response to critics of Christianity, those who would say that Christians are the reason that Rome has fallen. He responds first in five books to those who would suggest that Christianity has hindered the present earthy experience of happiness. He responds in a host of ways, showing that Rome wasn't all that to begin with, that Christianity hasn't done all that much to subvert it, and that actually some of the greatest gifts of earthy happiness and provision have come at the hands of Christian citizens, even Christian emperors like Theodosius. More on him later. Then he shifts and he considers a second challenge. Others would say Christianity isn't so much bad for us now. It's not simply that it it hinders our eating, drinking, and merriment, but rather that it it ill prepares us for the hereafter. If you live the Christian life, you don't stick out your chest, stick up your chin, and pursue gloria that will last for you and yours through the ages. You don't build up the pride of Rome, much less your family and your own name. It doesn't provide the kind of eternal and lasting happiness and glory that Rome, like any good city, pursues. Here, too, Augustine argues that this is a higher hope. It's better than simply wanting wealth. And yet, here, too, the charge falls flat. Christianity actually prepares us in the best possible way for the hereafter. It prepares us not by calling us to, to stick out our chests, not by preparing to add gloria to our own name, but by putting us on our knees and helping us to give glory to God on high. And he speaks of how the, the greatest of the philosophers of Rome, they know so much. They know that we're meant for more. They know that we're meant to look beyond today and beyond this earth, and yet they can find no way to where we're meant to want to be. And Christianity alone provides a mediator who might pursue us in love to give us hope not only that there's something for which we're made, but that there will be something which we receive. 
Interestingly, in those 10 books, Augustine responds only turning to the sources of Rome itself. He looks to the Greek and Roman authors. He doesn't look to Holy Scripture. He doesn't turn to the early theologians of the church. He argues by referring to Cicero and Sallust. He goes to their texts and shows their inconsistencies. He's offering what we might call an imminent critique, suggesting they're not consistent with themselves, they're not honest to their history, and they don't actually deliver on what they think we've fallen short of. But Augustine's not satisfied, and that's actually less than a third of the book. The add-on that his friend didn't even ask for, the second half, books 11 to 22, is a longer Christian reimagination of history and society. And it's here especially that Augustine doesn't let us sit with the questions and the pain as we experience it. He probes it. He challenges us. He calls us to think about it in different terms. He begins by looking at creation as we read of it in Genesis 1 to 3, the way in which we're made. Then he turns to consider that terrible fall, the way in which our ill use of our moral will has led to so many deathly and deleterious effects. And he traces that and its social consequences throughout the ages. He tracks from book 14, section 28 onward, the story of two cities, the city of God, the city of man. He describes them as marked by different loves, the city of God loving God even to the contempt of self, the city of man loving self even to the contempt of God. And he moves across Christian scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and even beyond in what we call post-biblical history, where he describes everything up to his own day in Roman history, considering the story of the interplay between these two cities, the way in which they both experience agony, the way in which they both fall flat, the way in which throughout that history they each experience times of success, of plenty and of want, and the way they each bear plenty and want differently. One as a sign of their own triumph or their own tragic failure, that which fits them for heaven or demonstrates that they're incapable of any respect, much less eternal glory. The other is a story where they penitently confess that every good comes from God and every failing can be forgiven, that there may be disappointment, tragedy, even sin this day, but this day is not all there is because there's Resurrection Day in the center of that history. Augustine finally, in books 19 to 22, turns to the future, to what hope we have, because this world and its crises isn't the end. He describes the return of Christ, and he describes the city of God in its fullness. He describes heaven and hell and the judgment that sends us one way or the other. And he wants to widen our perception, and he wants to deepen our imagination. He wants us to look at the world not simply by means of our sense perception, and certainly not means of our guts and our loins, the different appetites that lead us to revert from pain or to appetitively desire the next hit of this, that, or the other. He wants us to be trained and catechized. He wants us to go through therapy and God-saving work that we might learn to love the higher things that we might learn to be troubled and pained by more real challenges and threats, 
not mere inconveniences and disappointments. But ultimately, we might be ready to see and to savor God, nothing less. Well, I want to look at that story under the, the guise of a critical theory that Augustine offers to us. In the city of God, Augustine doesn't just offer an apologetic response. He doesn't merely accept the questions that are brought against Christianity. He answers them in good faith. He goes to sources the opponents would rely on and respect before he turns to any of his own resources, the kinds of voices that they might doubt or feel iffy about. But he doesn't leave it there. After respectfully and patiently offering a good faith response, he does press further. And he seeks to help Christians understand why we experience crises like this. Crises without, as well as crises within. So I want to look for the next few minutes at what we might call an Augustinian critical theory. And we could go to a host of other questions, but I want to just highlight six questions if we've got time, which is another way of saying if I don't get too long-winded, where we can see Augustine calling us therapeutically or critically to be reshaped, to reimagine how we perceive our situation. We begin with the question where he begins. Book one, why do we suffer? Rome's answer is rather simple. Political power hasn't been manipulated and exercised in the right way. These Christians are weak. They're unwilling to do what must be done, and therefore we've suffered shame and pain, some even to the point of death. Augustine wants to challenge that, suggesting there's something worse than death. And there's far more going on than power politics and manipulation. When he begins part two, he focuses on the reality of sin, of a fallen world, of corruptibility and death, the idea that every regime east of Eden, every regime, including Rome before that sack, it falls foul of perfection. It suffers corruptibility. It bears pain. And Augustine will go to great lengths to highlight from Roman histories themselves the litany of losses that Rome had suffered. And while the walls of Rome had never been sacked, Rome had struggled and suffered in a host of ways. And Augustine isn't going to let them bicker against Christian rule without also addressing the failures and the pains brought under other rule. He suggests that suffering and pain in this life until the return of Christ are baked into the equation. And we dare not begin by foisting the the fault on them, whether it's the Christian or the weak emperor, whether it's the military failure or misjudgment or the bad harvest. We might be tempted to segment and to focus our blame on someone or some person, but Augustine suggests we live in a situation where death is extensive. Its implications have run everywhere, and that is marked perhaps nowhere more than in our very selves. That leads to our second question. Augustine begs us to ask, why do we go haywire and find ourselves, our own selves, so frustrated? 
on page one of the City of God, he introduces a term that's going to recur throughout the text and be central to what we might call his moral psychology, the libido dominandi. It's hard to translate, but the best way to convey it would be to say it's a dominating lust with two ambiguous and interrelated facets. This side of the fall, we long to dominate. We want to be in control. Oh, it may be passive-aggressive control, but we long to be in control. We long to be capable of making our own decisions, of not being pinned in a corner or forced into an action. And Augustine argues that this has an addictive quality. The lust to dominate inevitably becomes the lust that dominates. He describes this socially. Rome, longing to guard her walls, longing to secure her peace, almost knows not a single year without war on her borders, seeking to expand her reach that her safety might be secure. Her desire to be in control means she is constantly racked by the demand of war. Not only social, though, it's the very self, if we're honest. Our desire, our desire to have things on our own timing and in our own way, it means we are constantly calculating. It means we don't take words on faith, even if they're words from God our Creator in His very Edenic garden. We always ask, what do they really mean? What might he really offer? We always have to do the work of hearing for ourselves, and there is no rest. Augustine argues that in this life, ever since the fall, we, Christian and non-Christian alike, continue to be marked by this itch to dominate. And it's an itch and a lust that will overtake us if it is not going to be challenged and uprooted by something stronger. Now that, that is so visceral and guttural precisely because of third who Augustine says we are. Lots of ways you could describe the human being, a, a political animal, a social animal, an intellectual animal. Augustine argues we're the image of God. And in books 12 and 13, he describes that as central to our identity, that at the very core, while there are many other things true of us, the first thing that's true of us is that we are not self-determined. We are, we are an image of another. We are made to find both our basis and our satisfaction outside of ourselves. We are not whole simply by ourselves. Not only is that true of us individually, that's meant to be true of us socially. We're meant to find our peace and our justice beyond ourselves. This is Augustine's great argument with Rome, Cicero, in his On the Republic, begins in book one. He has Scipio say that a city or a society is defined by its justice. And Augustine says, well, by that standard, Rome has never been a city or a republic. They've never given just due to God. They've never identified that from whom, that one by whom we receive all things. And therefore, however equitable, however just we may seem, in returning other things to other humans, Rome has never actually referred back her goodness and her blessing to God. And Augustine argues this is, this is where the rot sets in, and this is where it goes so terribly brutal. Given that we're made to find our rest in God, 
when we turn and we seek to control ourselves, we are forced to play God. We are forced to manipulate. We are forced to assume about others and prejudice. We are forced to take violence because we don't have genuine control. We are forced to act out like an angry child, a petulant child, who knows they're overwhelmed but is insistent on getting things under control. Augustine argues that it's precisely because we're made to receive from without that our posture of clenched fists leads to fights. And that raises the question for him, what do we need? Who do we need? Rome, again, suggests we need a strong leader. We need resolve to do what's necessary. We need nothing that would weaken our civic pride or would point our direction into some afterlife. We need to focus on the present. We need to strengthen our walls and our resolve. We need to do what we got to do. Augustine argues we need not just a way. We need a goal. We need a way and a goal that are worthy of our city and of ourself. He argues that Rome, Rome at best, can have a legitimate goal. The opponents of Christianity, they can point to something greater than momentary delight. They're not all about eating, drinking, and being merry. They can at times speak philosophically of transcendence, something beyond this life of consequence and meaning. But he also points out, they have no way to get there. They live in that tension between the guttural sense that we're, we're at, at war with ourselves, like an immune system misfiring on one's own body, and yet we're meant for something marked by a higher health and a heavenly hope. And Augustine argues this is where Christianity offers the unique promise of a mediator, that which Rome never, never will find their way to, one who is not only the goal but also the way. And not only the way to individual peace or personal happiness, but who's the way to hope in the midst of hurt. That leads to his fifth question. What's realistic as a hope for us here and now? Augustine argues, those of us who are good citizens in the city of God now and journeying amongst others in this society and world in this period, marked by the libido dominandi, suffering tragedy and crisis, at best, we have our happiness and hope. We still get sick. We still inflict sin one upon the other. We still experience disappointment politically and culturally. We still have bad crops. And viruses come and go in that world like our own. We have to be realistic about our hope. And that's why Augustine turns throughout his long reading of Holy Scripture where he really does go from Genesis to Revelation, both in grand scope, but also in painstaking detail. And he fixes on the pilgrim as the key image. We need to remember that we are pilgrims, not merely prior to conversion, but we remain pilgrims throughout this life until Christ returns. We need to remember that as much as peace and justice matter in society, we will always find them to be present fully only in hope, and that earthly peace and justice will always fall short precisely because of sin and that lust to dominate. Augustine argues that we are pilgrims, however. We remain not in Egypt, 
We aren't stuck where we were. We don't have to give in to despair. We ought not be tempted to turn over to just get mine and take care of my tribe. We're pilgrims. We've been raised from dead in Egypt, and we've been set on our way to Canaan's fair and happy shores. We aren't where we were. And though we're not yet where we will be, we can take steps, and we can see God provide. And that leads sixth and finally to Augustine suggesting what would be a good neighbor, a good citizen, even a good ruler. And here he challenges what the Romans assume. They want a strong man. They want someone who will stand up to the vandals. They want someone who will blame them and who will succeed for us. They want someone who will pound his chest and pursue Roman gloria. And Augustine argues that such characters have never marked the high moments of Rome. And they've not actually delivered on the goods. He does a careful examination of the great periods of Roman rule, and he points out that often it's the philosopher kings like Marcus Aurelius that oversee the development of bureaucracy and success in various wars. Still further, he points out Holy Scripture doesn't suggest that such leadership is what's called for. He points above all to Theodosius, the great example of an emperor who was quite capable of being ruthless, massacring folks at Thessaloniki. But when he was called to repentance by the Bishop Ambrose of Milan, Theodosius showed leadership, not only being willing to do what was necessary, but being willing to do what was necessary when it involved his humiliation in public. He showed up kneeling in sackcloth and ashes, and there, Augustine says, is real strength. Someone who's capable of leading not only at the front of a line of troops, but at the front of a line, confessing sin and coming to receive the Lord's Supper. Augustine argues that we have a different way to think about power. We have a different way to think about power precisely because who we are, the image of God, those meant to receive. And it's a different way because humans marked by the lust to dominate, we want to grab and we want to take and we want it on our time and in our portions. Augustine argues that that visceral battle between those with open hands and those with clenched fists, that will persist throughout this life. But the pilgrim, the pilgrim can not only hope for where they shall be personally, but they can witness to others of what's possible. And in so doing, point to the God who provides. That they can actually display virtue and strength. They can manifest wisdom. And above all, they can walk forward in faith, hope, and love. Gary Badcock, the most recent translator of the City of God, says this. The heavenly city on pilgrimage, not at home while it's here on the earth, is not captivated by earthly things. And it doesn't allow them to deflect it from its ultimate destination. But it too must make use of temporal things to sustain itself during its earthly existence. And for precisely this reason, it too has a stake in earthly peace. Augustine argues that's most true of Jesus, our king. His kingdom is marked by one who does love you. You, his enemy, you in your totality, you in your soul and your body. And because he loves you,
and because he loves God the Father Almighty even before and beyond his love for you, he's able to love you in just the right way. He's willing to give up his life, his gloria, for the sake of whatever's necessary that you might receive life and that you might flourish. Augustine argues in small ways, Christians, little Christs, those conformed to his image, whether they be peasant women or emperor kings like Theodosius, they too can witness to that kind of open-handedness about power because they too can know that as the image of God renewed in Jesus Christ, their happiness is in hope and they're capable therefore of selfless service. And that marks a city. A city that Augustine says is the most gloria, gloriousissimum. The first word of the city of God is most glorious is the city of God. Not because of its buildings, not because of its civic pride, but because of its love. Because of the shared love it has, love that's focused on the same God, love that draws each other together because of our sacrifice one for the other. Well, briefly, in conclusion, I want to ask, should we study in a time of crisis? We've been through it the last few years. Last time I was up here a few years ago, Dr. Horner and I were saying it was before COVID, that mental fog. We think back to things in simpler times. Um, we've had a number of events occur. Some of you will know Nassim Taleb's book, Black Swan, the idea of an event that is seemingly unexpected. It doesn't seem to be the sort of obvious result of component parts. And in some ways, many have felt like that's the world we're in. We're in the world of the black swan where events have compounded and combined such that we experience an anxiety-inducing, overwhelming sense of crisis. And intellectuals have always, when their consciences aren't seared, when they haven't developed moral calluses, they're always asking the question, why then shall we study? Some of you will know the story. In October 22nd, 1939, C.S. Lewis stepped into the pulpit at St. Mary the Virgin University Church in Oxford, addressing a much smaller crowd than normal at the beginning of that fall term. Smaller because most of the men were off fighting as the British had entered World War II. And he spoke an address titled Learning in Wartime, asking that question, how could a, a young person in good conscience throw themselves into the task of study when last year's roommate might very well be off fighting in the trenches? And he suggests that, first of all, it's always wartime. Don't kid yourself. Sometimes it's more obvious than others. But secondly, there may be a real vocation that some are called to study and to think to give themselves wholly to the life of the mind, even in a time of crisis or war. I want to suggest that's a helpful question in which to think about Augustine's city of God. He didn't live in Rome, but he did live in the wake of its sack. He wasn't there in lower Manhattan. He wasn't at the Pentagon. But he did do the task of theology on and after September 12th. And my thought is, Augustine not only respected the crisis, 
and its immediate threat by patiently listening, carefully addressing objections, various points of view, addressing them in their own terms. But he also respected it by not simply staying there, by not wasting a crisis, by asking how God and God's word would reframe how we think and perceive about it. I want to suggest perhaps, especially for those of you going about your work as undergrads and grad students, that's a calling for us too. Whatever the crisis may be, whether it's personal or public, whether it seems quite as epic-making as September 11th or the sack of Rome, a century-marking pandemic, or political unrest. But not only is there a calling to learn and to study during crisis, but sometimes the most significant thought is actually fashioned by the breakthroughs only possible in and beyond crisis. And perhaps Augustine's a helpful guide in both regards.